Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Ralph H. Craig III, who's a lecturer at Dartmouth College on an exciting new publication, perhaps more far-reaching than the vast majority of the monographs we cover on the podcast, called, uh, of course, (laughs) Dancing in My Dreams, a spiritual biography of Tina Turner. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Tell me, how did you end up writing a spiritual biography of Tina Turner? What's the story behind that? (laughs) Yes, I actually, I mean, I never thought of doing this, although I am a, uh, I've been watching Tina Turner's life and career for a long time. And I, like many others, I think, have always been very intrigued by her religious life, right? Her religious views, the fact that in every interview, she brought up her religious life and that there are many figures like her, right, who are always kind of bringing up this religious, their religious affiliations and interviews, many figures of popular culture, I mean. So I was always very intrigued by that, but it never occurred to me to write about that until a a colleague of mine's mentioned it on Twitter, and kind of as a joke, uh, although he might not have been joking at all, but I took it as a joke. Uh, and then the series editor reached out to me and said, actually, that is a very interesting project. Would you be willing to submit a proposal and think through it? And then I thought, well, why not? You know, the advice that I got when I went to grad school just before I started was say yes to everything and then work your behind off to be capable of all the things you said yes to. And... I followed that advice. (laughs) 
That's hilarious. So many, it's like, uh, I, uh, I, um, it's like being an entrepreneur, you know, you say yes to all your clients and then you figure out how to, how to meet their needs after the fact. But yes, I do remember that grad school advice well, and, uh, I ended up saying yes to a bunch of things and it works out well. <laughs> it seems to have worked that well for you as well. Um, I mean, part of the reason why I love uh, New Books Network and the podcast is because it's similar to my own bent in terms of taking what we do and 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 bridging, you know, the the fruits of our labor to, to, to a larger audience and explaining the value of what we do. But when you have a figure like Tina Turner, her impact, you know, her brand recognition, uh, you know, no one really needs to know. No one really needs an explanation on what or who the book is about in terms of a performer. Um, uh, but it is fascinating that you wouldn't quite see her as a religious, spiritual figure, and yet, as evidenced in your book, and I think anybody who's really paying attention to any of her videos or anyone who has the eyes to see in terms of her presence, that clearly she's an extraordinarily spiritual and, and, and in many ways, outright religious woman. And I think it begs the question of sort of this sort of religiosity. How might you characterize religiosity? Uh, I, you know, I characterize in the book Turner's religiosity as fundamentally combinatory, right? That is, she is Buddhist and she, or, or was Buddhist, right? And had been since 1973, but her practice of Buddhism included, uh, her upbringing, right? The, the religious traditions of her upbringing, which was primarily Black Baptist Christianity and Black Pentecostal Christianity. She incorporated that into her religion, the language of that into her religious life as well. And she also incorporated what, you know, I follow Catherine Albanese and calling the kind of third broad stream of, of American metaphysical religion she incorporated a lot of that into her uh, religious life as well by seeing psychics, her belief in kind of harmonic correspondence right, between the kind of macrocosmic universe and the microcosm, the microcosm that is the self. She believed in those things. She often expressed those views. She uh, held uh, what you might call millenarian, millenarian views about the kind of renewal of the uh, change in the millennium and all these kinds of things. She incorporated all of that into her religious life, all those kinds of beliefs she incorporated into her religious life, but still all centered on her practice of Buddhism, right? So her practice never, uh, once she became Buddhist, her practice was always the chanting practice of Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhism, but she incorporated these other ideas. Yeah, there's so many tantalizing threads there. So I, I, I think I often say this before I start recording, but I will say it while I'm while we're while we're on the air. I ask purposefully naive questions, uh, just because part of it is just to see what will come from a thirty thousand foot view perspective, and also perhaps somewhat their their imagined perspectives on behalf of those who haven't read the book, but certainly will or probably will at some point. And so, um. Was there a, is there a conflict? I mean, was there was there ever a choosing between? Was it was it syncretic? Was there a tension? You know, um, uh, being a Baptist uh, and a Buddhist, a Baptist or a Buddhist. You know, it, how did that come across to you in terms of her navigation of these 
these religious traditions that uh, for many adherents uh, might seem a little bit um, um, mutually exclusive in certain regards? Uh, there was never, as far as I can tell, a conflict for her. However, it was revealed, I think, in her 2018 autobiography called My Love Story, that her mother, Zelma Bullock, uh, seems, not a conflict, but seems to have felt some type of way about Tina's religious life, Tina Turner's religious life. Uh, Turner writes about, in, in that autobiography, she writes about a time when her mother came to visit her at her home in Switzerland. Uh, and uh, they get into some kind of argument uh, centered on Turner's sister and, and the way her mother is treating her sister. And Turner said something like, you know, you read the Bible every day, but it doesn't help you. You're still kind of arguing and fussing with my sister. And apparently that comment, you know, really set her mother off. And Turner reports that her mother said something to the effect of, no one tells me about me and my Bible. So that that doesn't, of course, evince a conflict for Turner in her own religious life, but there does there did seem to be within her family some uh, attempt to make a clear distinction between these traditions, which but which for Turner, again, were very much consonant with each other. And Turner writes about that extensively in her last memoir, Happiness Becomes You, which came out in 2020. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think both of those, both of those phenomena, neither of those phenomena is perhaps surprising to uh, whether a layperson or a practitioner or a scholar insofar as uh, there, there are certainly no shortage of um, Christian communities that would be, you know, a bit more insular about well there are certain tenets of christianity and uh tenets of buddhism may may present uh, attention there and also the flip side of that is that anyone who sort of reads her or hears her she certainly doesn't emote a conflict at all you know it's there seems to be a complementarity there um and to my mind what she's doing was just to uh, maybe a little bit ahead of a much larger movement that has engulfed so much of the Western world. So, so one of the questions I thought to ask you is, you know, in what ways do you see her, um, we'll call it maybe syncretism or her um, sort of her, her the, the combination of religiosity? In what ways do you see her as sort of emblematic or indicative of sort of larger cultural movements? Um, I think that, you know, as I, I write in the book that she she exemplifies something that we as scholars are increasingly turning our attention to, that many people's religious lives, as far as we can tell, are actually fairly combinatory, uh, regardless of what they say a lot of the times. They often, people's religious lives often do not fit into neat boxes and neat categorization. I think where a figure like Tina Turner becomes more interesting is that as a figure of popular culture, right, she is primarily known or was primarily known as a singer, dancer, entertainer, actress, and so forth, and on a global stage, right, that she was a, a global figure and most familiar to people 
in that context. And so what becomes most interesting to me is that she was modeling that kind of spirituality and representing that kind of combinatory religiosity to a large audience who was learning from her, right? People who may not necessarily be reading books about Buddhism or Christianity, right? Who may not be reading, um, going to churches or Buddhist centers, Buddhist temples, and so on and so forth. But we're learning their religiosity and their sense of spirituality from Tina Turner. And this is evidenced in some of the interviews that I conducted from in the book um, that are, are now in the book. On in YouTube comments, I did a deep dive uh, into YouTube comments on her videos, and there were large numbers of people who were saying that they were not only inspired by her, but taking up the practice of Buddhism and the beliefs that she held because of her. So I would argue that she exemplifies a trend in religion. Of course, that's what I argued in the book. But that that becomes so interesting because she exemplifies it and then is demonstrating it on a large scale. And it reminded me as I was writing, I didn't write this in the book, but it reminded me of something that I once heard the Dalai Lama say, right, which is, of course, a different tradition, right, Gelug, Tibetan Buddhism. But the Dalai Lama once said about musicians and singers and performers and these kind of popular artists that their reach is far greater than the reach of a, of a quote-unquote religious figure like him, right? That they millions of people are buying these records or seeing these performers live or watching movies and so on and so forth. So what they say and do, what these popular artists broadly understood say and do has a tremendous impact uh, far greater than his own, he was saying. And I think that there is some, I think the Dalai Lama was being characteristically um, modest, but I think that there is some truth to the, there is some validity to the fact that the scale that a figure like Tina Turner reaches, right? The scale of people that she reaches is quite vast. And we as scholars, should then pay attention to what is happening religiously there. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. Uh, certainly, she's a monumental influencer. When you think of, you know, when you think of um, household names, right? Certainly, there are, you know, there are states people, people who rise to the top of society or their field on a certain sense. You know, the odd world famous physicist, for for example. But the vast majority of household names. Really, what are they? There are those who entertain us. They're 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 singers, they're performers. That's who people know, and that's who people connect with. And what's interesting about her uh, status is that she's 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 an artist, or none. She's she's a great artist and performer and entertainer, and yet she is a as your book uh, demonstrates, she's a profound spiritual influencer and yet to my mind part of that power is that spirituality is not what she was selling as the the, the end game it was her process it was it was sort of she wasn't peddling spirituality but she was peddling uh, she was entertaining 
uh, through means of spirituality and, and being vocal about that being her, her, um, uh, what you call it, secret weapon, perhaps that wasn't so secret. And so uh, it really, really is a fascinating synergy of the artistic and the spiritual and the religious. And it, she had very clear things to say about her beliefs and practices, but you don't get the sense that she's preaching, pun intended, if that makes sense. Uh, and, well, until later, right? As I as I write in the book, when she kind of makes this formal turn to to teaching and preaching. But you're absolutely right. For much of her career, she was quite conscious of this line between the product that she was selling, right? Her music, her shows, entertainment, as she understood it, and her religious life where religion for her was the power behind it all. But as you say, and, and thus a part of the pro process, an important part of the process, but not the product she was selling necessarily um, until that changes later. Uh, first with the 2009 Beyond album, and then of course culminates with with her book, Happiness Becomes You. And I think that this, we have to see this as I write in the book as directly tied to what she learned and believed as a Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist, right? That is a tradition that understands there to be no separation between work and daily life, you might say on the one hand, and religious practice on the other. That religious that work becomes the expression of your religious beliefs and practice and that tradition. Um, and so she saw, as far as we can tell, and as I argue in the book, she saw her success as a performer and recording artist as the direct outcome of the depth of her spiritual practice, particularly chanting uh, Namyo Horengekyo, that is the title of the Lotus Sutra in, in mantric form, and chapters of the Lotus Sutra, that is the daily practice of Soka Gakkai and Ichiren Buddhist, right? She was doing this before every show, and also after almost every show, right? So, so in a sense, her product is framed by her spiritual practice, right? And I quote in the book her saying that she could get through, she found that she could get through anything, even the pressures of a global tour, if she's chanted for 30 minutes twice a day, right? So basically an hour or more a day. Yeah, that's it's fascinating that she had such a staunch uh, spiritual religious practice. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I think there were even periods in her life, if I recall, that it was like an hour to two hours uh, daily or even twice a day. And it was clearly, I mean, it's really interesting for me in terms of, you know, receiving the book as a, you know, a scholar of religion and understanding and sort of a sort of an armchair cultural critic and understanding trends and culture. Um, But also as someone versed in Indian spirituality who teaches um, you know, uh, wisdom teachings to people like Tina Turner who are coming from uh, primarily uh, Christian, Jewish, spiritual, not religious, you know, backgrounds, and they're engaging practices. They're they're looking for mantras. They're looking for mindfulness practices, and they're looking for um, supplements to whatever they're doing or believing, rather than something you know, something altogether new uh, you know they're, they're not looking to upset the apple cart too much from their backgrounds but they're looking to supplement or enrich it in some way and and perhaps unsurprisingly her practice was uh, a mantra practice you know clearly you know she's using her vocal cords whether whether she's chanting a buddhist mantra or whether she's on stage and you know i yeah i can't quite muse at the synergy of you know where does the singing end and the chanting begin i suppose oh absolutely i mean i while i was writing the book I thought a lot about Guy Beck's book, Sonic Theology, Hinduism and Sacred Sound. Um, and that that was a groundbreaking book because, and he does touch on the kind of Buddhism and, and Sacred Sound as well in the book, but you know, it's primarily Hinduism and Sacred Sound, about the importance of, of sound and mantric recitation and so on and so forth in what he's calling um, the kind of theologies of Hinduism, right? He's highlighting the importance of sound and recitation. And I thought about this book while I was writing the Tina Turner book because as as David McMahon has kind of carefully argued in his book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism, right there, there is this kind of historical tendency, particularly in the United States, to towards kind of silent introspective meditation practices, right? And a, a, pref- a preference for that and the prevalence of those kinds of traditions. Um, and a downplaying of sound, ritual, recitation, all things that have been very important throughout the histories of these traditions, right? Buddhism included. And so two traditions, two Buddhist traditions that have been very important in the history of Buddhism in the United States, the Jodo Shin tradition and the kind of uh, what is called the Buddhist churches of America thing and Nichiren Buddhist traditions, but often downplayed or outright ignored in favor of some other traditions, for example, like Zen Buddhism in the US, even though Zen Buddhism itself includes, and Zen Buddhist traditions themselves include 
uh, much ritual and chanting and recitation practices and so on and so forth. But those are downplayed often in favor of kind of silent introspective meditation. And yet this other stream of practice, chanting, sound, recitation, it's been very important. And so when we look at a figure like Tina Turner, it's she becomes important as well because she is publicly demonstrating this aspect of religious practice, of Buddhist religious practice, that's often downplayed, right? That of ritual practice, sound, uh, chant, chanting, recitation, and so on and so forth. So that is kind of very important. And I had in the back of my mind, while, again, while I was writing the book, the work of people like Guy Beck and trying to highlight the importance of sound for her. And of course, Turner herself would go on to say in a, in a 2011 interview that she views chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo as being like a spiritual song. Yeah, when you hear her chant it, um, it it's a fascinating, perhaps even delicious mantra for those who've tried it. But uh, when you hear her chanting it, it's uh, it's hypnotic, if not mesmerizing. You can tell the mantra itself has a certain quality. There's also um, her voice, which obviously has an extraordinary quality. But you can tell, or one can tell who's done mantra, or who teaches mantra, or really even music as well, even operatic works. You can tell when someone has a bunch of practice into a piece. And really, you're hearing, for lack of a better word, the shakti, the energy of like, you know, hundreds of hours of practice when she practices it. So it really is altering. Um, it's fascinating. And also, uh, much to my surprise, I think four or five years ago, someone sent me a clip and I, I was astounded because I really didn't know of her spirituality. And I was, you know, barely in touch with much of pop culture, although clearly her, you know, some of her music I quite liked, uh, you know. In the days before dissertating when you know i listen to music no i'm kidding i still do listen to music regularly but, <laughs> but but um someone sent me this link of tina turner singing slash chanting this sanskrit chant you know sarvesham swastir bhavatu i mean this is beautiful it's a beautiful it's a gorgeous sanskrit blessing it's sort of like uh, what is it it's like you know you know, happiness to all, peace to all, wholeness, and, and sort of auspiciousness to all. Uh, it's delicious on the tongue, uh, no matter who chants it. And then you've got Tina Turner, you know, with, with a choir of, I, I believe, children just blasting the Sanskrit mantra. I'm thinking, what planet am I on? You know, you know, did somebody microdose me for lunch without me knowing it? Like, <laughs> Tina Turner's chanting Sanskrit? What's going on here? Um, so, <laughs> so, so there is, there is some... Um, I, I really like the point you made earlier because, you know, you know, to my mind, without question, over the past number of decades, at least two or three, there is a reception uh, through through Western culture of um, the, 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 the contrived sanitization and rationalization of quote unquote Buddhism. And this dual move to exoticize, uh, fetishize, if not, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of denigrate Hinduism. You know, Hinduism has rational thought. You hear people say, you know, they they're struck by Vedanta and what Buddhists do ritual. You know, you know, there's and, and really on the ground. I mean, there's very little difference as a household tradition. And similarly, between you know, uh, Buddhist thought or, or sort of uh, some of the other uh, darshanas, whether they're Ostika or Nastika, I mean, they're, they're grappling with existence on a very high intellectual level. So 
it's great that she is saying, look, I'm a Buddhist. And to me, that means sitting down at an altar or a shrine in my home every day and uttering, you know, engaging in sacred utterance, aka mantra in the Indic context. And so it really is uh, fascinating. My sense is that, um, well, let me hold on to that thought. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, first, I want to get a bit more of your voice. Uh, you mentioned in passing you looked at YouTube comments. What else did you look at? What was your data for this book? So I, as I write in the in the book, in the note on sources, I mean, Tina Turner as a, as a public figure has a veritable treasure trove, right, of publicly accessible words, right, a public archive. Um, there are, there is not as of yet any collection of her papers, for example, or, or something like that in her correspondences. But there, we do have her own words, right, edited though they may be, in the form of interviews in her books and so on and so forth. So I that was my my data. I interviewed people from the Soka Gakkai International United States branch, right, SGI USA, that the people who were were there in the early days of her practice, who helped her get started in her Buddhist practice. Uh, I interviewed people in family members of hers and people who knew her in her early years in West Tennessee. Um, and those primarily those are my sources, right? So interviews, studying her performances and her interviews, her writings, uh, and to construct this picture of her religious life. Okay. Um, and in so doing, I then again had to take seriously things like YouTube comments to, you know, see what, right, what religious claims and arguments were actually being carried out in comments on videos, right? That's, that is a huge kind of database as well. To what extent is your, is your methodology uh, innovative or typical, would you say? And, and maybe related, you could maybe riff on them and whatever. My questions are always generated for us, always up to you how you want to respond. But maybe related is the idea of, you know, what sort of intervention uh, or contribution do you hope this book represents? Um, I think that there are a number of works starting to, so I'm thinking right now of Von Booker's Lift Every Voice and Swing, where in which he engages with YouTube videos and YouTube comments. Um, I think a number of people, a number of scholars are starting to take this seriously. And of course, scholars who work in religion and popular culture um, scholars like Catherine Lofton and people like her, scholars like her, I think are starting to take this kind of work seriously and, and doing, also looking at, looking into popular culture for its religious resources, right? Um, as an intervention with the book, I'm trying to take and I'm making the argument that we need to take seriously the intellectual and religious labors of Black artists, right? Particularly Black artists like 
Tina Turner. Um, and as I have mentioned before in other contexts, where this would also include figures like Alex Coltrane and those like her who were figures of religious authority, even as they were, and especially as they were uh, popular artists and entertainers, uh, singers, musicians. So my, my intervention in the book is to take seriously that popular dimension where religion is happening. Um, right. And to what extent would you say that um, it's it's particularly needed among Black artists as opposed to perhaps non-Black artists in general? Otherwise put, you know, has it been, has this sort of, has the stance and then the sort of the content of the religiosity among um, non-Black artists been taken seriously? Or would you say it's sort of an overall fight to take pop culture uh, as a serious sort of ground of religious studies? Uh, I think that you're right. I think that that is kind of more broadly pop culture, popular culture needs to be taken seriously as a site of religion. But then when we talk about Black artists like Tina Turner or like Alice Coltrane or someone like that, right, these are figures who are not a part of the so-called Black church, right, where the locus of Black religiosity is often perceived to be the Black church as narrowly defined. And of course, there is no monolithic Black church. So that, that expression, the Black church, is a, is a problem on many levels, right? Because saying the Black church implies that there is some kind of monolithic Black church, which there is not. And yet, on another level, then it is often perceived that African Americans are Kind of fundamentally Christian, right? And that their religious lives is fundamentally tied to Christianity uh, and African-American Christianity. And in Tina Turner, that is, and in a figure like Tina Turner, that is not true, right? She, of course, does not forsake the language and some of the beliefs of her Black Christian upbringing, um, that is certainly true, and that's true for, as Rima Vesely Flaud argues in her book, Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition, that is true for many African-American Buddhists, that they don't entirely forsake the traditions that they were raised in. But Tina Turner's religious adherence was to Nichiren Buddhism, right? And her, she viewed herself as a Nichiren Buddhist. Sometimes she referred to herself as Buddhist Baptist, but that did not have an, a so-called institutional dimension, the uh, the Baptist side of that. She did not attend, to my knowledge and in my research, she did not attend any Baptist churches ever again once she left West Tennessee, for example. So again, while she maintained some of the beliefs and the language of Black Baptist Christianity, she was and considered herself to be Nichiren Buddhist, and she did attend Buddhist meetings. So her, the locus of her religiosity was in Buddhism, not Christianity. So when we're looking at her religious authority, we are seeing an instance of Black religious authority in another tradition, namely Buddhism, 
not the black church, right? The so-called black church. And so when we start paying attention to popular culture more broadly, we find many figures who are espousing religion and teaching religion. But then when we pay attention to black artists in particular, we start to see examples of black religious authority beyond the so-called black church. And so my book is an intervention on that front as well. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, you know, so much of her teaching is, it, it's sort of teaching by example. And yet, as you say, there's there's a turn uh, later in life, perhaps owing to uh, a deeper understanding or adoption of Buddhist teachings, perhaps owing to the natural um, reflection that tends to accompany age. You know, she made a turn to be more overt with sort of um, the uh, religiosity not being the process, but also the product of her life's work. Could you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yes. So in the book, in particular in chapter five, and then in chapter six, I discuss Tina Turner's two wildest dreams, right? And so her first wildest dream, and this is a riff on her album, her 1996 album of the same name, Wildest Dreams, and the, and the tour that accompanied that album. But then also this becomes a meta, kind of a... Uh, the two guiding dreams of her life. On the one hand, to be a successful stadium-filling popular artist, right? To have the wide-reaching, large-scale commercial success. That was her first wildest dream after leaving her ex-husband, Ike Turner. And this dream comes to fruition with the successful release of her 1984 private dancer album it is with that album and the tour that followed that that she became an arena filling act and then on the next album and tour the break every rule album and tour the 1986 album and the 1987 1988 tour she becomes a kind of stadium act and then by 1990 and beyond She's filling stadiums around the world. So this is the fulfillment of her first wildest dream, right? Commercial success as measured by successful albums, going gold and platinum, and filling arenas and stadiums around the world. But in 1986, in the epilogue to her uh, first autobiography, I, Tina, she voices this second dream to one day become a spiritual teacher. And this, as I argue throughout the book, she is in a sense, a spiritual teacher all along, right? She's always sharing about her practice and talking about her practice. But as you uh, put so well, Raj, that is kind of more on the process side. But she voices in that 1986 epilogue that she hints that one day that will become the product that she's selling. And in a sense, the first wildest dream will be in service to the second wildest dream to be a religious teacher. In 2009, after she retires from uh, her live performances, right, she does her final 
finishes her final tour in 2009. And her very next project is Beyond Buddhist and Christian Prayers. And on that album, she voices what's called on that album, a spiritual message that she wrote herself that's woven throughout the tracks of the album and her chanting practice of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and parts of the Lotus Sutra. That represents then her turn to spiritual teaching where now her religious life is the product that she's selling. The next album, Be- uh, Children Beyond, right? Where, and that's the album that her recitation of the kind of Sarvesham Mangala mantra is on that album, right? And she has this choir of, of 30 children with her, uh, drawn from countries around Europe. And then uh, the next album is called Love Within. So that's the third Beyond album. And on that album, she returns now to singing um, kind of gospel, essentially, gospel music. And then on the fourth Beyond album called Awakening Beyond, she recites the Heart Sutra in English. So you see this this kind of her combinatory religiosity on full display across these four Beyond albums. But now, as you say, spirituality is the product, right? It's no longer in the background and implicit. It is now explicit. And now then the fulfillment, that becomes the fulfillment of her second wildest dreams. And so these two dreams, which serve each other, for her is what the book then is about in chapters five and six is about how she accomplishes these two dreams right uh and as you say which i like this meta- i like this way of putting it a lot it's kind of process and product um yeah yeah well thank you uh you know there's so much to be said about such a force such as a Tina Turner figure. And it seems to me from, you know, uh, you know, I love what I do in terms of interpreting narrative, Sanskrit narrative, Indic thought, really and truly my, perhaps my greatest love is people and working with people, understanding people, watching people. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, she was an individual who had a colossal dream and one gets the sense that she was well aware that she had fulfilled it. She was satisfied. She was satisfied with the heights that she achieved. And some people with different dispositions, uh, their hunger is insatiable. And that's part of what drives them until, you know, forever. But for her, you get the sense of, you know, uh, like wholeness. She's like, okay, that itch is scratched. I have reached, I have, you know, I have, satiated that desire i've been etched into the imaginaire in perpetuity like i am you know i'm an icon i'm good and it just coincides with the phase in her life where she's like well i'm you know i've got my wits about me and you know I'm, i won't live forever what now yes uh you're muted bro sorry and so it's what now and so she's it's along the lines of she scratched that itch and uh Perhaps she's like, well, you know, what got me here? 
what what can I share in terms what can I leave behind in terms of people who are a hugely struggling b trying to be better people c trying to accomplish the impossible whether because of you know where they're starting off in life etc cetera, etc cetera. and and you talk about it in the book of course and it cannot be underscored um the for lack of a better word faith and the value that you put into her practice um and i'd love you to say a bit more about that you know channel tina and, and tell us you know what does the practice mean to her but um uh, just as a just as a you know just as a lead into that there is this um i mean there's a shortage of quotes but here's a tiny little snippet from i think it was harvard this is review uh she's asked you've had so many ups and downs in your career in life what have you learned and I find it so fascinating. Like all Indic thought, thought starts from Sarvam Dukkam. Like life is full of suffering. How do we address that? And she say, I used to be baffled about why I had endured so much abuse because I hadn't done anything to deserve it. After I began practicing Buddhism, I realized that my hardships could give me a mission, a purpose. I saw that by overcoming my obstacles, I could build indestructible happiness and inspire others to do the same. Then I could see everything that came my way, both the highs and the lows as an opportunity for self-improvement and for sparking hope in others. I mean, she's a modern day artistic Rishi. I mean, it's fascinating. Tell us a bit about her practice and what that, her relationship to her practice. So in Soka Gakkai and Nichiren Buddhism, they hold the, they, what they call their kind of three principles, right? Uh, or three pillars that they, they often call it faith, study, and practice, right? And in that tradition, faith means the kind of confidence in your Buddha nature, that is your capacity and the potential inside of you to reveal in that tradition, right? Not attain, but reveal your awakened state of life. That's faith in that tradition. Study is then to read and particularly read in community the writings of Nichiren Daishonin, the 13th century Japanese monk who uh, the, the tradition of Nichiren Buddhism developed around, right? And most all of his teachings are in the form of writings. So to study his writings is then constitutes the pillar of study. And the last pillar, the third pillar is practice and that's divided into two aspects in Sokagakainichim Buddhism practice for self and practice for others where practice for self means your your own daily twice daily practice of chanting Namyorengekyo that is the again the title of the Lotus Sutra in mantric form but in that tradition re that represents and is the name of your Buddha nature so more than just the title of a sutra, that mantra becomes the very name of one's Buddha nature. And then to chant two chapters of the Lotus Sutra, right, which teach about the kind of true aspect of all phenomena as understood in that tradition and the kind of eternal awakened potential of Buddhahood. That's practice for self. But practice for others means to share the practice with others and to share those teachings and those philosophies that 
will enable someone else to begin their own religious journey, right? That's called practice for others in that tradition. So these three pillars, faith, study, and practice, are adhered to by most Soka Gakkai, Nichiren Buddhists, right? They see themselves as trying to deepen their faith, deepen their study, and deepen their practice. And so for Tina Turner, then, she, right, as she writes a lot about and talked a lot about her faith, right, and we've talked about that in this interview, she displays an impressive command of Nichiren Buddhist writings and doctrines and teachings, right, and always saw herself as a seeker, always trying to learn more. So that's the study. And then from the practice angle, we know that in the hardest periods of her life, she was chanting some four hours a day, right? Two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. And those I interviewed who practiced with her said that she was religious, if you will, about that, that she did not miss her twice daily practice. Um, and then the practice for others, that's what she's talking about in that Harvard Business Review interview in, and as I discussed in the book, that she was quite conscious of and quite intentional about trying to inspire other people in their practice and journeys. And this is true, I found in my research of figure, other figures in that tradition uh, who were her friends, right? The late Wayne Shorter, who she was very close to in the early days of her Buddhist practice, and particularly his, his uh, first wife, Anna Maria Shorter, and also Herbie Hancock, right? Jazz pianist, uh, who is, of course, still alive and was a, a close friend of Turner's. They were also quite intentional about trying to inspire others with their the music they created, the performances they gave, and even the interviews they gave. This was an intentional act. And that falls under, in the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Buddhist tradition, that falls under that third pillar of practice and name and specifically practice for others. This was a significant part of her Buddhist practice. And so when people would leave her concerts, and I write about this in the book, when people would leave her concerts feeling inspired or in the YouTube concert uh, comments saying they felt inspired, that's what she wanted them to feel. And she got, she often spoke of in interviews, receiving letters and fan mail at her home of people saying how much she inspired them. So I, I think one of the things that I'm trying to argue in this book is that because of the religious tradition she was a part of, she was consciously trying to do that, that she was consciously trying to inspire others. It wasn't it wasn't as if, okay, you buy the albums and you see me, you buy my albums, you see me live, and hopefully you, you know, maybe you get something out of that, maybe you don't. She was intentionally trying to get them to get something out of that, you know, get something out of her product, 
if you will. And that, as I argue, became a part of her brand. Yeah, she was uh, definitely, I suppose, a soulful artist, pun intended. And, you know, I suppose blurred are the boundaries between uh, the aesthetic and the religious experience in her case. And as you say, um, intentionally so. What would she say about the relationship between her practice, her, her, her mantric practice, and her worldly success? What would she say about her practice and her worldly success? That they were one in the same, in a way, right? That, I mean, that's fundamentally, that was fundamentally her belief, as far as we can tell. And that that comes directly out of Soka Gakkai, Nichiren Buddhist thought, where, again, there's no separation between daily life and work and, and success and uh, spiritual practice. And I think she, she has this great quote that I, and I quoted in the book, uh, where she's asked, she was asked in an interview, and this was uh, from a 2011 uh, interview, where she's asked, what does it mean for you as a rock singer that your newest album is about prayer? And she says, it means that people who work in the arts need prayer as much as anyone else. I don't separate my work as a rock singer from prayer. When I went on stage to make a living, I made people happy with my work. The feedback was always that I inspired people to get out and help themselves to go forward, to practice Buddhism. Everything has been very positive, and that's because of my spiritual practice. And then she goes on to say something I think quite poignant, which speaks to what you said earlier, Raj, about the kind of end of her life and, and the ability to, to feel that sense of fulfillment. She says, I feel alone now. My mother is gone. My sister is gone. But I have two sons. I have my relationship with my partner, Irvin, and I have my practice. I feel that I have help. The practice takes care of me. If you practice, you will see that this is exactly what it does, end quote. And of course, by the time Turner herself passed away, she had lost her two sons, right? Her uh, oldest son uh, passed away in 2018, and her youngest son died in December of 2022. So by the end, you know, she only had her, her relationship with her husband, Urban, and her practice. But she herself says, right, she didn't separate her work from her practice and that the practice took care of her. And given what we know, and, and you have read the book, uh, she meant that in the broadest possible way, that the practice took care of her in every way, her material success, her spiritual well-being, and in the end of her life, gave her her comfort and solace as she prepared to go beyond, as she called it. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, neither here nor there, but I can quite relate. Um, I think it's this year, just over 20 years uh, myself of uh, daily mantra practice. And it's quite, um, I mean, there are a lot of things one can say, I suppose, but it is quite nourishing. It sort of offers that sort of center of stability from which you can um, 
engage the tumult exceedingly that is life. And so it's, it's really fascinating to hear her reflections. I really was unaware of this dimension of her um, hot whiffs, but I really, you know, didn't dive deep into her as a, uh, you know, a case study for uh, religious studies, um, you know, uh, monograph, but it's really, it needed to be done. And I'm glad you did it. Uh, tell me, was there anything that surprised you about this process, either about the process itself or about what you found out about her, you know, anything literally remarkable about the process? Um, I think that the thing that I walked away, you know, after, after writing the book and doing the research, I knew that she was, that she was serious about her, you know, I mean, if you listen to her interviews, she's clearly serious about her practice. But I was not aware of how serious she was and intentional she was about teaching that practice to others. I had always thought uh, that that was, a, in a sense, a byproduct for her. You know, so she's talking about her practice in interviews, or she's sharing, you know, about her kind of religious journey. And if you're inspired by that, that's that's great, you know. But what she's doing is promoting an album, right? And so much of her much of her thinking about and her her words about religion and spirituality, most of that occurs in the context of promoting something else, an album or a tour or something like that. But that actually, as I discovered in my research and from interviewing people who knew her and who you know were involved in her religious life, that she actually was consciously trying to teach people about religion and about uh, you know spirituality and the importance of that. That was a conscious process for her. And towards the end of her life, the last, 10 plus years she you know fulfilled her dream of becoming a teacher and intentionally sharing that with others uh, i think that was the most surprising thing to me and it i think it highlights the need for scholars as i said to take that to take figures like her seriously in popular culture right if they say that they're trying to teach, we should take that seriously and ask what is what are the contours of the of that teaching? What what are they actually teaching? And then turn our attention to, and this is what I was doing with, for example, the YouTube comments. If you're going to teach, there has to be for it to be teaching, somebody has to be learning. So are there ways of of measuring and discerning who's actually learning and i think this is where as i did in the book this is where attending to youtube comments and and things that people are saying at these concerts and so on and so forth that's how we one way we might gauge who is learning from a teacher like tina turner fascinating uh, and to my mind quite timely insofar as uh, it's palpable, uh, I think, to everyone on the globe who is in a coma that we're undergoing a massive transformation as a species. 
uh, as a globe, as you know, as a within the context of our various nation states and communities and religions and creeds and bodies and you know ethnicities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, religion is so complex; it's both so passe and so and never before so relevant. <laughs> And so it's a question of not, you know, um, it's not a question of sort of, um, it's a question of the extent to which the religious impulse and the work of religion and what's done through religiosity. You know, I, I taught a course for a number of years at Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, where I looked at ancient um, uh, religious narratives and modern sci-fi fantasy. <laughs> Right. So, 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 where do we see the work of religiosity done? What is the modern pulpit? Who is the modern preacher? Is it an artist like Tina Turner, who's doing it consciously to try and reach her, you know, her audience? So that I think is a really important takeaway in terms of really the the, the, the relevance and maybe even the survival of our of our guild of our of our discipline is really adapting to what quote unquote religion looks like in these times, which it's evil it's a moving target right so we really need to pay attention uh, another idea that keeps coming back to me time and time again is this idea of um sacred sound you know this idea of the extent to which you know musicality can be used uh, to to really induce heightened states and people emotional states you know etc and 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 the extent to which you know um ancient traditions have sort of codified and ritualize sound for also the altering of states. So I, I really find those two ideas fascinating. Um, I want to thank you very much both for writing this book and appearing on the podcast today. You can feel free to comment or share anything you like before we close for today. Well, thank you for having me on here. And I, you know, I 100% agree with you that religion is this moving target and we have to, as scholars, of religion, we we need to be moving with the target, right? We need to be attending to to where that target is going. And the importance of sacred sound, I think, is there needs to be more. I want to see more works like Guybeck's Sonic Theology. I want to see more works that take seriously the role of sound in spiritual practice. Um, there is a, a great prevalence of studies about silence, you know, like silent introspective meditation, silent contemplation, um, kind of individual silent contemplation. But there is also this dimension of community and sound. And I 100% am there with you, obviously, with this book and with my own work. So I thank you very much having me. Uh, it was uh, my pleasure. So thanks again for appearing. For those listening, of course, we have been speaking uh, with Dr. Ralph Craig III on Dancing in My Dreams, a spiritual biography of Tina Turner. Um, until next time, keep listening, keep thinking, keep reading, and keep contemplating perhaps both the power of sound and what religion looks like in this day and age. Take care. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.